Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, January 7th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. This week's cover story is from the Fearless column. It's never been this bad before. Childcare providers raise alarm about workforce shortages, lack of available slots. By Emily Kestel. Editor's note. This is the first installment of a two-part series that looks at issues with child care in Iowa, which experts believe to be a big factor affecting local and national economies. Part one introduces the current workforce shortage in the industry and what's currently being done to address the lack of available slots in the state. Part two will detail the recommendations from the Child Care Task Force, which was established by Governor Kim Reynolds in 2021 to address the child care crisis. Friday the 13th has long been considered a day of bad luck. It certainly was a bad day for Miranda Niemi this August. Naimi runs Collins Aerospace, Aerospace Day Academy in Cedar Rapids, which is the largest child care center in the state. That day, August 13th, was the last day for six of Naimi's employees, which meant that it would be the last day that she would spend her entire workday sitting at the executive director desk. To keep in line with the strict DHS staff-to-children ratio requirements, Naimi had to teach 13 of the center's three-year-olds full-time, in addition to maintaining her responsibilities as executive director. August 13th was when we nosedived, she said. I thought COVID was going to be the worst thing I've ever had to deal with as a director. I think the workforce crisis might be, she said. The Day Academy is licensed for 448 kids with a desired capacity of 380. Currently, there are 278 kids enrolled, and there are about 120 kids on the wait list, Naomi said. On a good day, there are between 65 and 70 staff members working, but right now she's running in the high 50s, which means she can't add any more kids until she can hire more staff. Naomi said that since August, she's lost between 12 and 15 staff members. All but one have left the industry completely, opting to work in the medical field, become office managers, or stay at home with their young children. Starting wages at Day Academy are between $11.41 and $13.03 an hour, depending on education and experience. Child care workers in Iowa make an average of $10.18 per hour, or $21,170 per year, the lowest among surrounding Midwest states and lower than the national median pay of $25,460 per year. Most programs can't afford to pay benefits either. They left because of the wages, Naomi said. They're crying in my office because they don't want to leave because they like working here. But they needed to find something that could actually pay their bills, she said. Child care providers across the state and country are facing similar situations. Diana Williams, director of the Ann Wickman Child Development Center in Atlantic, noted that some of her staffers have second jobs working in the school system or at a nursing home. 
Childcare providers are not paid near enough, Williams said. A 16-year-old can make two to three times that much money without having to do near the work that these ladies and men are having to do on a daily basis, she said. Currently, the Wickman Center has 39 people on staff to work with the 97 kids who are enrolled, though Williams still said she needs five or six more people. Starting wages for providers at the Wickman Center are between $9.50 and $10 an hour. We've had to turn to a $500 hiring bonus within the last year to try and get people to come into the door, Williams said. U.S. Labor Department data shows that the child care services industry nationwide is still down more than 100,000 workers compared with pre-pandemic levels. Because of the child care industry's unique position in its effect on the rest of the economy, that's a problem. Without enough employees available, child care providers often have to turn away children in order to maintain the DHS ratio requirements. When children are turned away, working parents are left scrambling to find other options for care. If they can't find any, which isn't uncommon due to the severe shortage of slots, they may be forced to quit their jobs to stay at home. That's why Naimi believes that fixing the child care workforce issue is a key first step to getting the economy back up and running. If they don't fix us, then there's not going to be people available to go back to work because they're not going to have child care, she said. While providers and advocates all agree that child care has been an issue in the state for a long time, many describe the current situation as the worst it's ever been. I can pretty categorically say that child care has been a problem for quite a while. Even before COVID, the hue and the cry was growing, said Dave Ahrens, a founding partner at Private Wealth Asset Management and a board member of Early Childhood Iowa. The economic supports, particularly for families in need, haven't been growing to the level of costs for the providers, he said. The child care crisis is especially problematic in Iowa, where the state is a leader when it comes to the percentage of families with all parents working outside the home. Pre-pandemic, that level was 75%, compared with a national average of 66%. That means child care for Iowans is especially necessary. There's no one reason the issue of child care became a crisis, but there are several key barriers at play. There's the issue of availability. Iowa is home to about 5,000 child care programs and 173,000 total spaces that are licensed with Iowa Child Care Resources and Referral. That may sound like a lot until you consider that there are more than 235,000 children age 5 or younger in the state. About a quarter of Iowa's population lives in a child care desert, which is an area where the demand for child care far exceeds the availability of providers and open slots. When the Wickman Center first opened in 2010, Atlantic had 39 child care providers. Now there's 18, Williams said. Kids at Wickman come from 14 towns and four counties. Some families have had to drive in from Manning, Audubon, and Shenandoah, the last of which is an hour away.
Some child care centers are known to have a wait list of more than 100 kids. In the last 10 years, Iowa has seen a 56% drop in the number of child care programs and a 6% drop in the number of child care spaces. Raven Walker, who is an in-home provider in Council Bluffs, said that in the entire 11 years that she's been in business, she's met just three providers who have retired from child care. The rest have either burned out or switched to a different career. It's a physically and mentally exhausting job, Walker said. As my own kids approach school age, it's going to be a constant battle for me if I choose to stay in this or not. There's the issue of affordability. An Iowa family earning a median household income spends an average of 12% of their income on center-based child care, higher than the national 7% affordability benchmark. For a single parent earning the median household income, that rate is more than 40%. The average weekly costs for an infant in child care in Iowa, taking into account both in-home and center-based care, is between $119 and $218. Another estimate showed that the average monthly cost of child care in Iowa is $1,031. Some rates are even as high as $500 a week, said Jennifer Banta, Vice President of Community Engagement and Advocacy at the Iowa City Area Business Partnership. I have one family with twin three-year-olds. Amy Bice, an in-home provider in Cherokee, said, I handed them a receipt at the end of the year for $18,000 that they paid me. In the last 10 years, the weekly cost to send children to a provider has increased by 22% to send an infant to an in-home provider and by 44% to send an infant to a licensed center. State-funded financial assistance is available, but only for families whose income is at or below 145% of the federal poverty level, 38425 for a family of four, or $25,259 for a single parent with one child. In Iowa, more than 18,000 children, or 10,000 families, currently receive child care assistance. Then there's the issue of quality. As of July 2021, of the 1,576 registered child development homes, licensed child care centers, and preschools that participate in the Iowa DHS Quality Rating System. Just 682 have a Level 4 or 5 quality rating. You don't just want a babysitter for your kids. You want your kids in a situation where they're learning how to play with other kids, said Janie Harvey, Division Administrator for Adult Children and Family Services at Iowa DHS. I've talked with a number of kindergarten teachers who said they could immediately tell which kids were in a regulated center or development home, she said. Child care is not just bad for parents, though. Providers are also hurting. Already operating on razor-thin margins, many providers were forced to close during the pandemic. While many of them were able to reopen, they continued to face an uphill battle in being able to stay afloat. 
I always like to say to a business, imagine if all of a sudden you lost all of your revenue and your expenses were going up and you couldn't control them. That's what our child care providers are dealing with right now. They're in worse financial peril than they've ever been in. Don Oliver Wyand, president and CEO of the Iowa Women's Foundation, said. Aaron Monahan, director of Better Tomorrows, said several centers in Benton and Tama counties are in very fragile financial positions. I am incredibly worried that they are going to close before the state's stabilization grants are released. They're probably looking at 10 months or less. They need this money desperately, Monahan said. Every time I talk with child care providers, I can hear how defeated and stressed and frustrated they are. It's so disheartening knowing that this is such an important job, she said. Iowa Child Care Resource and Referral is the state agency that focuses on quality child care by providing services and information to providers, parents, and communities. Joanne Lane, affectionately known by some as Iowa's Child Care Godmother, led the agency when it launched in 1992 up until her retirement in the early 2000s. Documents she shared with the business record show that availability of regulated child care has been an issue since the beginning of tracking referrals and supply in 1980, and that it has always been considered an essential family support. Consider the cave woman who needed to go down to the river to wash clothes, Lane wrote. During those times, and for many generations, child care arrangements tended to be informal, provided by extended family members or neighbors, she wrote. After the Industrial Revolution and the need for women to join the workforce during the war, the need for child care grew. It's not like the old days where you used to be able to find the lady down the street and she could come and watch your kids, Williams said. Everybody's working. It takes both incomes in order to be able to survive, and they need some place that they can take their kids, Williams said. Iowa Child Care Resource and Referral worked for decades to increase business engagement on the issue and advocated at the municipal and state government levels, but progress was slow. CCR&R had been working on the issue for a long, long time and weren't getting anywhere, Oliver Wyand said. Everything was being done in silos. People weren't getting it. Aarons, who has been involved with early childhood, uh, childhood Iowa for more than 16 years, said that throughout his tenure on the board, he tried to persuade the legislature to put a focus on the 0-5 to five population, but did not succeed. I have sat before previous governors. I've sat in the House and Senate chambers and talked about long-term investments for the benefit of our children because of the power and value of early childhood education. It resulted in exactly zero dollars difference to the state budget, Aarons said. Conversations around child care were still happening, though they've never been as elevated as they are right now, said Mary Jansen, a regional director at Iowa Child Care Resource and Referral. Sometime around 2017 or 2018, a coordinated rebranding effort elevated child care as an economic issue. Seven years ago, Kyle Rode, 
then a human resources manager at Master Brand Cabinets, discovered that the company was losing four to five people per month at its Waterloo facility due to lack of childcare, which was ultimately costing the company $20,000 a month in turnover costs. Rode got in touch with Jansen and asked what the solution was. I remember the conversation vividly, Rode said. I asked, who's doing something that has solved the problem? And the honest answer was, well, nobody really. Around the same time, Iowa Child Care Resource and Referral joined forces with the Iowa Women's Foundation, which had in recent years determined that child care was a key barrier to women's economic self-sufficiency. It was really time to come together, Oliver Wyand said, and I think, honestly, it took reframing child care as an economic issue and a business issue, and not the family issue, to really start to get people to see it, she said. Said Rode, we used to go in and talk to businesses, and I'd have to explain the problem statement, that there weren't enough daycare spots and it was too expensive, 16 different ways. Now I walk in, and a few people are like, yeah, this is a terrible problem we need to fix. So I think there's good momentum, he said. If it wasn't apparent then, it's crystal clear now. As of September, nearly 1.6 million moms of children under 17 were still missing from the labor force, many of whom were forced to drop out to care for their children. Businesses are looking around saying, where did my help go? Aaron's said. My help is home taking care of their child because there was no care available, he said. If nothing else, child care advocates say, the pandemic heightened the need for child care. It needed to be significant enough and made enough fuss about in order for people to start taking a look. Angela Lynch, an early childhood educator and board member of Early Childhood Iowa, said, We're really hurting ourselves by not paying attention to the issue, she said. In 2017, the Iowa Women's Foundation launched the Building Community Child Care Solutions Collaborative. The nonprofit went to 18 communities across the state to meet with stakeholders about potential solutions to increase the availability of quality, affordable child care. Solutions included building or expanding child care centers, encouraging businesses to add child care benefits, and working with community colleges to educate the future child care workforce. The collaborative is now operational in 44 communities, including the 1,151-person town of Glidden in Carroll County. The town is surviving mostly on in-home daycare, Lynch said. When those limited number of slots fill up, that poses a problem to parents who then have to go out of town to find child care, some as far as Jefferson, which is 20 miles away. That creates a rippling effect, Lynch explained. Parents are taking their finances out of town. Some will keep those kids in that town's school district for stability, which could then lead to the parents moving to that town to make it more convenient. According to the latest data on child care deserts from Iowa Child Care Resource and Referral, 40% of Iowa towns have children but no known child care. 5% or 55 towns in the state have no children at all. 
Glidden has seen declines in population every year since 2012. We have to keep the students close, Lynch said. About three years ago, community members in Glidden began conversations about the need for a child care center. With help from the Iowa Women's Foundation, community stakeholders talked about what was needed and how they would make the center a reality. Lynch pushed hard for community members and businesses to get involved financially, frequently citing the 13% return on investment figure. They started fundraising in September 2020, raising $1.4 million in six months. They received many private donations as well as $175,000 from the Child Care Challenge Fund and $500,000 in community development block grant funds from the Iowa Economic Development Authority. Projected to open in fall 2022, the Lil Wildcat Education Center will have capacity for 56 to 60 children. Lynch said she isn't concerned about whether there will be enough kids to fill the center, but rather whether there will be enough people to staff it. As if it were a questionable field of dreams situation. If you build it, will they come? We have parents clamoring when they can get on the list, Lynch said. The staffing is the biggest thing. People don't want to come into the position. That could be an issue, a big issue, she said. Two and a half hours away in Benton County, where four of the seven census tracts are designated as child care deserts, Monahan shared identical concerns. If we build something new, will they be able to attract employees? Unless child care providers are paid a livable wage and receive benefits, we may end up with an empty building. There has to be a light at the end of this tunnel. At the height of the pandemic, 60% of providers closed their doors, at least temporarily, Harvey said, adding that she's proud of the work DHS did to help them reopen. Using CARES Act funding, DHS gave out monthly stipends ranging from $500 to $2,000 to providers to help them stay open and began covering unlimited absent days. We're proud of the work we did when COVID started to hit, Harvey said. Iowa moved aggressively. We received tons of emails from people saying that without this financial support, we would have closed. Erica Fuentes, Director of Child Development Programs at the Crittenton Center in Sioux City, praised the monthly stipends that were doled out. Let me say this. DHS, they get a bad rap, but my Lord, they worked hard to make sure they were helping us and putting things into place to help child care places stay open, Fuentes said. The Iowa legislature also worked on several policy measures that focused on early childhood. Three child care bills passed in 2021. HF 302 addressed the child care cliff effect. HF 260 allowed unregulated in-home child care providers to care for up to six children instead of five. And SF 619 raised the upper income limit for those eligible for child care tax credits to $90,000, up from $45,000. Three other child care bills passed through the Iowa House, but not the Senate. 
Additionally, Governor Kim Reynolds announced the creation of the Child Care Task Force in March, which was tasked with developing recommendations to address the child care crisis. She released the task force's recommendations to the public in November. Despite all those measures, child care advocates say much more is needed. We need money. More and more center directors are going home crying every night, not knowing if they'll be able to open their doors the next day financially. If we lose any more child care centers in Lynn County, we're going to be hurting bad, Naimi said. My husband and I will joke, there has to be a light at the end of this tunnel. And my husband, who is kind of a smart aleck, says, I think somebody needs to change the light bulb. It went out. Banta said she wonders if the issue of child care has hit rock bottom yet. With child care and the number of women dropping out of the workforce, has it gotten so bad that we're really willing to solve this problem once and for all? Editor's note. Next week, we'll be highlighting proposed solutions to the child care crisis by diving deep into the child care task force recommendations. Two parent perspectives on this topic are also included. First, Caitlin Emrich, a mom of two kids, Jack, nine, and Paige, five, in Vinton, found herself without childcare for Jack at the beginning of the pandemic. Both she and her husband were essential workers, she in public health, he in public works. Paige at that time was young enough that she was in full-time daycare. Jack, however, needed someone to watch him after his elementary school closed in March. Left without any other options, Emmerich and her husband made the difficult decision to send Jack to live with a grandparent an hour away in Tiffin. For 11 weeks, every Monday morning, Emmerich would meet her father-in-law halfway in Cedar Rapids to hand off Jack and would then pick him up on Friday afternoon. Emmerich had trouble finding childcare for Jack even pre-COVID. Two in-home providers closed, and she was dismissed from two because Jack, quote, had needs that care providers weren't able to meet, end quote. She said the childcare staffing crisis was the underpinning reason that they weren't able to stay at the childcare center, adding that the staff didn't have the proper training to be able to navigate the situation with her son. There needs to be more of a support system for the whole child care sector, Emmerich said. I really think that there needs to be more to assist in the value that providing stable quality child care can provide for families, she said. And the second parent perspective? For six months after Haley Close's first daughter was born, she had to pass her around to friends and family, whoever could take her due to the lack of childcare in Dysert, a town of 1,300 in Tama County. She later snagged a spot at an in-home facility in Vinton, 30 miles out of the way from where she worked in Waterloo. Less than a year later, Close and her husband ended up moving from Dysert to Vinton because the drive got to be too cumbersome. I can't keep doing this, she said. I can't keep driving an extra 30 minutes, especially in the winter. Close recalled thinking. Moving to Vinton didn't magically solve the childcare issue once and for all, though. We've gone through a daycare a year, Close said. 
whose kids are now two and six. We've loved all of them. It's just for whatever reason, they don't work out. Providers leave for different opportunities, which I can't blame them for, she said. She said that moving small kids from provider to provider so often makes it hard for them to create a bond. You really want them to be going to a place that they feel like it's their second home, where they feel comfortable and loved and cared for. Throwing that kind of wrench in their little lives is a much bigger deal than we really even know. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, January 7th, 2022 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. From the Closer Look column, meet a leader you should know. Chris Mitchell, President and CEO of the Iowa Hospital Association by Joe Gardias. Chris Mitchell was appointed President and Chief Executive Officer of the Iowa Hospital Association in August and began his new role in mid-October. Mitchell, who was selected by the IHA Board of Officers and Trustees following a national search, was most recently Executive Vice President of Advocacy and Public Affairs for the Michigan Health and Hospital Association. Mitchell began his career as an Administrative Fellow with the Michigan Health and Hospital Association in 2006. He held leadership roles in government relations, political affairs, and advocacy, and was named to the Executive Vice President position in January 2019. He succeeds Kirk Norris, who recently retired after 34 years with the Iowa Hospital Association. Established in 1929, the Iowa Hospital Association is a nonprofit trade association representing 119 hospital and health system members to provide advocacy, education, and information to its members. Based in Des Moines, the association is an allied member of the American Hospital Association, and represents and advocates on health policy issues before the Iowa Legislature, Congress, and regulatory agencies. A Q&A with Mitchell. Are you originally from Michigan? I generally say yes, because it's a little more complicated than that. I was actually born in New Jersey. My father worked for General Motors, so we moved around quite a bit between the ages of 0 and 10. So I also spent time in Ohio and Kansas and then moved to Michigan and essentially have been there since 1989. I grew up in a suburb of Lansing, Michigan called Okemos. Do you have any medical background in your family or what influenced you toward a career in hospital advocacy? I like to say that if you talk to most people that work at a hospital association, it's not something that you grew up saying like, I want to be a policeman or a fireman. I want to work at a hospital association. My interest really was in politics, and I had wanted to work on a political campaign. And so I reached out to some individuals who were in and around politics who I knew, and one of them happened to be the former president of the Michigan Health and Hospital Association. And he essentially told me that that wasn't really the best path from his perspective, and he countered that I should start a year-long fellowship working in the Government Relations Division of the Michigan Health and Hospital Association. So I took him up on that offer. 
I got hired into the association with three, within three months of that year-long fellowship into a full-time position. And that was just over 15 years ago. So now I'm here. What do you consider some of your significant accomplishments with that association? My key victories, from my perspective, really come from the public policy front. I think that, obviously, advocacy and public policy are paramount to providing the best service to the members. So if I think about specific victories that I'm extremely proud of, in 2008, it's hard to believe this, but you could smoke pretty much anywhere in and around public places. So we were successful as part of a coalition passing legislation which would ban smoking in indoor workplaces. That really was my first legislative achievement, so that has a special place in my heart. Another one was Medicaid expansion. Much like the team at the IHA, I was a part of the group that pushed forward Medicaid expansion in 2013 to work with lawmakers on both sides of the aisle and come forth with something that really benefits almost a million Michiganders. So providing health insurance for a large chunk of the state is obviously something that I'm extremely proud of. What's your expectation of what your focus will be in your first year leading the association? The overarching theme for me is that our strategy will be centered around ensuring access to health care to all Iowans. And there's several paths that you will see us go down. I think one is dealing with workforce issues. I know that even in Iowa, healthcare isn't the only industry right now that's dealing with workforce issues. But as hospitals, we're in this unique position in which we have to provide services 24-7, 365. And from our perspective, the healthcare workers are tired. This has probably been the most grueling stretch of any of their careers. And we've got to find a way to bring in reinforcements. So that's looking at what we can do with current programs to help retain workers and what we can do to attract new workers to Iowa. A little bit further down the road is how do you get young people excited about working in healthcare? So there will be a multi-pronged approach around workforce and we look forward to working with the legislature, the governor and her team on solving this very complex issue. The complicating factor is that we are competing with 49 other states in this. As a black person in this leadership position, how do you see your role? From my perspective, it's something that always remains front of mind to me, and I'm hopeful that the influence that I can have on the staff and our membership is to help them through that journey. I think the good news is the IHA was well on its way in their DEI efforts and certainly exploring the best ways that we can be helpful to our members as an association in their efforts to improve under that umbrella of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so for me, it's about first understanding that this is a different place than Michigan and really talking with members and getting in the communities and understanding what diversity means in Iowa. What civic involvement did you have most recently in Michigan? I'm still a board member of the Todd Martin Youth Leadership Program, which is a program that helps under-resourced kids in the Lansing area learn the game of tennis and also get help in the classroom. 
and really giving them a unique outlook at a sport that maybe they didn't have access to. For those who don't know, Todd Martin is a famous tennis player from the greater Lansing area, and he started a foundation there about 10 or 15 years ago. And the other board I spent some time working on for a lot of years was the YMCA of Michigan board, as well as their youth in government programs. Two things that I like are trying to help the next generation be the next set of leaders. And really, you can't get folks interested in politics too soon. So it's very important that we ensure we have a pipeline of people to run for elected positions. What's an interesting book that you've read lately? It's called First Friends. It's a book by Gary Ginsburg, and we handed that out to a large subset of our membership. And I actually got to interview Gary as part of the IHA annual meeting. It's really a fascinating book about the best friends of nine different presidents. So while it's about politics, it's about how people you've never heard of shaped the country in a fascinating way. And it really gives you insight into how people relate to each other. And considering, do you have the right first friend around you? So while it's based on politics, it's got something in there for everybody, in my opinion. Chris Mitchell, at a glance, hometown, Lansing, Michigan, age 42, family, wife, Natalie Stewart, and three children, Alec, 18, Ashley, 15, and Jack, 13, education, Bachelor's degree in political science and pre-law, Michigan State University. Master of Business Administration, University of Notre Dame. Contact, email, mitchellc at ihaonline.org. And phone, 515-288-1955. This week's feature story is in the transportation section. Growth in air freight traffic pushes to capacity at DSM by Michael Crum. The Des Moines International Airport has seen a 19% increase in the amount of cargo it handled over the past year, and that was before Amazon Air began serving the airport in November. The latest data available from the airport shows that more than 80 million pounds of cargo have passed through the airport this year as of November. That is up from about 68 million pounds the prior year and is stretching the airport's ability to handle air freight to capacity. With Amazon Air now serving the region, the expectation is that air cargo coming through the airport will increase. That would be the hope that there is significant growth opportunity if they expand their operation here, said Kayla Kovarna, Manager of Communications, Marketing, and Air Service at the airport. We are uniquely positioned with the interstate system and the rail system here, and they have great connectivity from our airport to anywhere in the state, so we feel like we are uniquely positioned and we hope there is the opportunity to grow pretty significantly from the air freight side of things, she said. Air cargo activity at Des Moines was relatively flat from 2019 to 2020. Despite uncertainty heading into 21, substantial growth in air freight has been experienced. 
We're seeing significant increases in air cargo here at Des Moines International, and we account for a little over 50% of all air cargo in the entire state of Iowa, said Kovarna, whose conversations with Amazon began before the onset of the pandemic. With the addition of Amazon Air came a new company to handle goods coming in and flying out on the new freight carrier. Trago Dugan Aviation opened its offices on November 9th, the same day Amazon Air began serving Des Moines, joining other freight carriers FedEx and UPS at the airport. Vince Dugan, president and legal counsel for Trago Dugan, said the company has about 50 employees at its Des Moines location. The Nebraska-based company was awarded the contract to handle Amazon Air's Des Moines operation, offloading packages, sorting them, and loading them onto trucks for delivery to other Amazon facilities. It then receives packages, sorts them, and loads them onto planes to be flown to other parts of the country. Dugan said the agreement with Amazon is the company's first foray into air freight at the scale of the Amazon operation. We have done cargo for European airlines and some long-haul domestic airlines, but it was not at the scale of what we do for Amazon, he said. We were familiar with the process, so the newest thing for us was not unloading the aircraft, but running the warehouse. Dugan said that while his company's sole focus is to ensure the Amazon operation in Des Moines goes well, He's interested in expanding Trago Dugan's operations in Des Moines over time. We like the Des Moines airport, he said. All the airlines that are there are customers of ours in other places, and we're very interested in additional growth in Des Moines, although we don't have anything in the hopper right now. Our main focus now is to solely make sure the Amazon operation just hums, and it's doing great. The way to get the growth from our partners is just by doing a really good job, so that's what we're focused on, he said. Trago Dugan currently occupies half of a building just north of the airport's parking ramp, a building shared with Signature Aviation Flight Support. The building will only be available for a couple of years and then will be demolished as part of the terminal project plan, with a new facility being built in the South Cargo area, Kovarna said. We are continuing conversations with the Amazon Air Network planning team to explore opportunities for future growth, she said. They are aware the current facility is temporary, and we will do our best to partner with them on creating opportunities here at the South Cargo area. We have talked to them and shown them our development plan and land that is available to be developed. They're not quite there yet. Obviously, this service is still very new here, so they know we'll have to start those conversations a little more robustly in the coming months, she said. There is limited space for ground handlers, but the airport team was agile and was able to find space for Amazon Air, Kovarna said. We made it work, but at some point we will hit a wall where we just won't have any facilities left to reconfigure and utilize. So it's crucial we not only continue moving forward with the terminal plan, but also continue establishing relationships with investors and whomever to help us develop out here on the airfield so that we can accommodate the growing cargo side of things, she said. Kovarna said it's not clear when that wall will be hit, but the growth being seen in Des Moines is a trend nationwide. 
According to Kovarna, the airport does not have the capacity to sustain long-term air cargo growth at the current rate and hopes to expand that capacity with the terminal programming plan, which includes the construction of a new terminal building, among other improvements. But for now, the airport is 100% focused on meeting passenger demand and the construction of a new terminal, she said. So we're not going to take our revenues and invest them in a new cargo facility at this point, Kovarna said. We need to focus on the passenger terminal, so there are some facility challenges there. The airport isn't privy to information from carriers about what products are being shipped by air, other than the fact that shipments have increased since the onset of the pandemic. One example, Kovarna said, is manufacturers who might need a new part for a piece of equipment. And instead of waiting for it to be delivered by truck, they pay the extra fee to have it delivered by air overnight. So it's a mix of different things that could be a factor, she said. I can't specifically say what is attributing to our growth here, other than UPS and FedEx have grown, and the addition of Amazon has helped. Turning now to the column on Leadership by Susanna DeBaca, president and group publisher of BPC. Change is the new normal. 10 Leadership Lessons for 2022. One of the most frequently used phrases I heard from business leaders and friends last year was something along the lines of, when things get back to normal. While some days I also feel nostalgic for pre-pandemic routines, it is clear that there is no going back to the old ways of doing business. In 2022, change is the new normal. It's hard enough to accept that the coronavirus variants and general disruption will continue, but how does that affect your business strategy? How do you lead your organization through continued change? Drawing on themes that have emerged at our company's panels and events, conversations with other business leaders, and research, I offer this list of business requisites as food for thought as you look to navigate the year ahead. 10 Leadership Lessons for 2022 Number 1. Change is the New Normal Regardless of the fact that many humans seem to dislike uncertainty and crave stasis, Business interruption and disruption continued through 2021 and are likely to be the horizon for the foreseeable future in 2022. Between supply chain issues, staffing shortages, hybrid work arrangements, inflationary pressures, and cultural shifts, business leaders will find that change is constant. My advice? Get comfortable with it. Number two. Remote work is here to stay. Even over the last few months, many leaders were talking about the day their teams would come back to the office. But as my dad used to say, that horse has left the barn. Depending on the job, employees will increasingly work when, how, and where they want. Are you ready to help your cultures evolve to offer choice and flexibility in work arrangements? Number three. Online meetings are a work in progress. Whether your team is remote, in the office, or on the move, 
meetings are increasingly online. If your workplace is like ours, the satisfaction levels with video, audio, and lighting quality on Zoom or Teams calls have varied. Some days are smooth, and other days we spend the first 10 minutes trying to get the technology to work. Expect to invest in or adapt to evolving technology. The days of you're on mute or we can't see you are not over. Take a deep breath. Number four, diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, are front and center. If you don't know what DEI or some version of that abbreviation is, it's time to get with the program. Creating and advancing inclusive cultures and communities for every single person in your workforce. Every single person will be table stakes for any organization that wants to recruit or retain employees. Will you open your mind and embrace the opportunity DEI presents? Number five, create contingency plans for everything. In an age of constant disruption, smart businesses should have proactive playbooks with plans for every possible scenario. In addition to the pre-pandemic standard fare disaster recovery topics, such as weather and natural disasters, power outages, active shooters, workplace violence, and data breaches, remember to add or amp up your planning for new virus variants, cybersecurity attacks, public unrest and protests, investor activism, supply chain shutdown, and unbridled inflation, with a subchapter on derechos. Better to have a plan for something that seems far-fetched than to be caught off guard. Diversify, diversify, diversify is number six. When I worked on Wall Street in investment management, the old portfolio adage was, don't put all your eggs in one basket. As the first wave of the pandemic showed us, when consumer preference and market forces shift, businesses dependent on a single product or service can find themselves in trouble if that one line is threatened. Successful companies will create or tweak their products and services, and even staffing models to create buffers against unforeseen challenges. Number seven, innovate, innovate, and keep innovating. In 2022, leading executives will be focused on innovation, from creative short-term problem solving to brainstorming on long-term transformation. Consumers' needs are evolving quickly and leaders must be ahead of the curve anticipating and fulfilling those needs. Whether the innovation is around people, processes, products, or services, leaders and teams who think outside the box will be positioned to compete. Number eight, create flexible, adaptable cultures. In addition to hybrid or remote work, the need to meet employees where they are is intensifying and demands for top-down workplace transformation are increasing. While the snacks and ping-pong tables of pre-pandemic days are nice, today's worker wants a competitive wage and benefits, flexibility, assistance with childcare, and a respectful culture. While there may be costs to creating a new world of work, 
and the return on investment of worker satisfaction is as yet unknown, I'd place my bet on culture every time. Number nine, develop resilience. Our ability to adapt has been tested repeatedly, but resilience can be practiced and learned. Tending to your own physical, spiritual, and psychological needs and insisting on healthy boundaries between your professional and personal life will help you bounce back when adversity hits. You can do it. You now have a track record to prove you can roll with the punches. And number 10, practice kindness. With change will always come tension, and as a leader, you'll continue to be confronted with individuals and teams who are stressed. Some of that stress may be work-related, but some may be way beyond your scope. Yet, as a compassionate leader, you have the choice to give grace and be kind in all your communications and interaction. When you role model kindness, others will follow, and that will make a difference. As much as we might wish for our lives and businesses to look like they did pre-pandemic, the world is different. The ability to accept that reality and adapt will be increasingly important to leaders' success in 2022 and beyond. From the Business Records Insider Notebook, Bits and Bites of the Finer Side of Iowa Business, a Leaders' Survey. Editor's note, this is a continuation of our 2021 Leaders' Survey coverage, which we began publishing in the November 26th issue. Our annual survey asks business leaders to share what they feel are some of the top issues affecting business in central Iowa, and in particular the greater Des Moines region. As you read, you'll see the responses and also select remarks from those who opted to leave comments as they took the survey. This year's guest editor, Jake Christensen, is the founder and president of the Christensen Development Company. He provided analysis for each question. In this week's question, agree or disagree, the growing number of Amazon facilities in central Iowa will help local businesses. Guest editor Jake Christensen's comments. Leaders are split on whether the growing number of Amazon facilities in central Iowa will help local businesses. Some say that attracting a top-tier business like Amazon is good for our community and brings more jobs and talent to central Iowa. Other leaders are uncertain, and some feel strongly that Amazon will hurt local business, especially smaller local retailers. Leaders point out that Amazon can help some businesses increase their distribution channels and help others manage supply chain challenges. The commodity product distribution is likely to migrate to Amazon-type delivery platforms, while unique Experiential retail will continue to be in distinctive locations. Overall, 26% agree with the statement, 36% disagree, and 38% were not sure. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, January 7, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.